again, Give Back Gang, and welcome to the Give Back Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Friedman. My guest today is the Global Director of Gender Equality at Athletes for Hope. She's consulted for the NCAA. She was the Chief Experience Officer at the Third Half in San Francisco, the Director of Leadership and Global Innovation at the Institute for Sport and Social Justice. She was the Global Sports Mentoring Program Co-Director at the U.S. Department of State. She co-founded the Center for Sport, Peace, and Society at the University of Tennessee, and she's on more councils and advisory boards than I can count. As we will today, and in all Give Back Sports episodes, we'll learn how our guests have parlayed athletic accolades or influence within the world of sports into an opportunity to uplift the community around them. As a reminder, if you have any questions for our wonderful guests, post them on our social media channels. This is going to be a ton of fun. It's an honor to welcome today's guest, an inspiration in her own right, Miss Ashley Huffman. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Brett. Thank you so much for having me. And I don't know who that person is you read about, but uh, sounds like she's been busy and probably needs to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if the break is anywhere in your near future. How are things going since you relocated? Yeah, it's great. Life in D.C. is so good. Um, you know, this is where the action happens. And I feel surrounded by opportunity and big thinkers and dreamers and doers. And so it's been a nice change of pace in terms of just the excitement and for what's possible. And so it's been good. Good. I'm glad to hear it. It's not a guarantee when people re relocate that things are going to go according to plan, but I'm glad that it sounds like they're on the right track. Yeah. And especially when you go from Knoxville to DC, life looks a little different. So it's good though. I'm keeping the Southern accent and the roots strong here and <laughs> in the nation's capital and um, have met a lot of wonderful people who have helped in the transition. So Beautiful. It takes a village, I'm sure. I also remember that, you know, because I grew up in the Northeast, anytime I would make my way down to Alexandria or into DC proper, I would end up having that southern twang especially after a beer <laughs> and it felt so right until i left dc and then it felt so so wrong again <laughs> i can appreciate that <laughs> so i think a good place to start is uh so to speak the origin story right so what's your fondest memory about sports and why have you found yourself in a civic-minded role as you continue to develop your career? Uh, it's a great question, right? I mean, as someone who's a sports professional and a former athlete, when you think about what's your fondest memory, um, it takes you back on a journey, right, of all the good things that have happened. But I think also it takes you back on all those life-changing moments, right? That's the beauty of sport. It's this uh, this great teacher of life. And I think about, you know, why we all love it. It's uh, it's the adversity, the triumph, the resurrection, uh, the tenacity that it takes to do it, the growth, the pain, the recovery. And so, I mean, yeah, you can think about all of the championships, the medals, the different people that you've met along the way that have touched your life. But I think for me, there are two really distinct sports memories and stories that shaped me, one as an eight-year-old little girl and one as a 22-year-old woman. So I'll tell you one of those because I think it has had a profound impact on my life. And this story is one of uh, a young girl, eight years old, growing up in a new town in the middle of nowhere, West Virginia, uh, playing basketball with her dad. And I moved to this town and I was just obsessed with all things sport. You know, my mom, she tried so hard to 
trying to channel me into these really girly angles, right? Um, you know, like ballet, hated it, cried, screamed, quit. Uh, <laughs> you know, dolls popped the heads off and shot them like basketballs at the hoop. Um, you know, so there just was like not a lot of, I mean, I joined choir and the teacher said, how about you stand in the back and just mouth watermelon? You know, like you just, <laughs> just keep it simple. And so I'm like, my natural tendency is do everything that my dad was doing. So when we moved to this new town, I wanted to play basketball, but there were no girls playing basketball. It's just all boys. And my dad was like, yeah, but you're good. So you should play. So he signed me up and I played on an all boys team in an all boys league as the only girl at eight. And in that moment, I don't know, for whatever reason, uh, the boys never passed me the ball. Okay. So I played like three or four games and I stood over there and I was on the wing and I'm like, I'm open. I can do this. Like, if you just hit me with the pass, it's yeah. Like give me a shot. And, um, you know, I went three games in and I'd never touched the ball. And so finally my eight year old self, I threw my coat down and I was like, that's it. I quit. I'm not doing this anymore. And I was crying. And my dad said, Ashley, what's wrong? And I said, well, the boys never give me a chance and they never pass me the ball. And I don't want to stand out there if I'm not actually playing the game. And he said, this is a hard life lesson for you to learn at such a young age. But in life, you can't just be as good as the boys. You have to be better. And unfortunately, there just are no handouts. So if you want to play, you've got to go make your own action. You have to, if you want to shoot the ball, then you need to steal it. If you want to dribble the ball, you need to rebound it. Um, So you have to make your own action. And from that moment on, my life changed. I was like, okay, I have to be better and I have to do it for myself. And I think um, it was profound because the next game, uh, (laughs) jump ball, tipped, now my team had the ball. And hearing my dad's words, I went and I stole it from my own teammate. (laughs) I think that is not what he meant. But from there, it just took off, you know. So then I was like uh, the only girl on the all-star team and the only girl to win MVP in this boys league. And I can remember so distinctly um, my dad and I driving back on this two lane country road from a, from an all-star basketball tournament. And we had, we we stopped at seven 11. We got Slurpees. We celebrated with the windows down. We were the champs, right? Me and my dad, we did it. We took on the world. And I think for me, that's what I've tried to do with my life is a, to create positive sports experiences for people because those in positions of power have the opportunity to make that a really great thing or a really tough thing for people. And the second thing is, as I believe that every little girl deserves a male champion, whether it's a dad, a brother, a colleague, a partner, a coach, everyone deserves someone to believe in them. And I think that's what my dad did for me. And I think that's what it will take to change the world. I think that it has to be men and women together, that your victory is my victory. And that's what I learned that day with the Slurpee, with the windows down, is that we can do this and we can do it together. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Now, how does that lead to the 22-year-old woman who had a profound experience? <laughs> well, from both of my parents, really, a fierce independence, you know, to say, you can be anything you want to be. You can grow up in a town of 800 people with one stoplight, but you can be anything that you want to be. And so for me, I was obsessed with basketball from that moment forward and earned a college basketball scholarship, which was great. But, you know, I hadn't traveled much. I mean, you know, a few places in the Southeast and wherever we went for our uh, conference games, Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia, Ohio. And um, I had an opportunity at the end of my college basketball career. Someone was looking for a Division One 
basketball players to go to China. And I thought, well, the next logical step from West Virginia to Kentucky, my next travel plan should be China. That only only really makes sense. So, um, so I said, yes, of course. I did what any good 21, 22-year-old will do. And you just rebel against all good sage advice and you go anyway. And so I went and I think it was in that moment that I realized that sport was more than sport that it was more than just a ball on a court. There was more to it than just putting the ball through the hoop, that in a place like China, Wuhan, China, that took two and a half days to get there, um, that the hopes and dreams that I felt for my life as a 22-year-old woman were not that different than the hopes and dreams of the Chinese women we were playing with and against. And so this orange rubber ball very much became a conversation starter of like, well, what do you want for life? And what challenges do you face? And how do you want to lead and what's next for you? And you want to be happy and healthy and successful and have a family and, and all the things And I realized in that moment that you don't have to speak the same language because sport was that language. Mm. And so it was powerful to me to see the world beyond that small town that I grew up in in West Virginia and to know that sport could be such an incredible change agent. And even though I didn't have a career path mapped out, <laughs> Because my parents kept saying, uh, are you going to, like, we don't understand. You just keep going to school, and we're a little unsure of where that's going. And I'm like, don't worry. I mean, I've got a plan. I'm sure it's going to work out. But if I can, inspired by that trip, somehow combine sport, travel, international, empowerment, women, education, that's what I want to do. And they're like, yep, that doesn't seem very clear. That's not like investment banking. That's not like medical degree. That's not like, so how do you do that? And I'm like, you take the next right step. And so I got a master's degree. I got a PhD and I just kept taking steps forward when people invited me to go on trips, when there were opportunities to, you know, engage in sport on an international level. I I did. And I fell in love with the idea that this could be a career And um, I've always wanted to teach. I've always wanted to coach. And so pursued the route of professor and practitioner. And I guess at this point, it sort of worked out. Um, (laughs) I tell my parents, thank God it wasn't chorus. I mean, I was not going to do well in that. So, you know, here we go. Thank goodness there was sport. And yeah, I think that was a profound life-changing moment for me as well to understand that sport was just more than sport. Yeah, it sounds like you did a lot more over the last... 15, 20 years and say watermelon in the back row. (laughs) A few things. Just wasn't my life path. (laughs) If you could go back and talk to those women that you played ball with in China, what would you tell them now? Thank you. Thank you for teaching me so much about life, even without your words. Thank you for embracing me on a cultural journey that said to me, there's more that unites us in humanity than there is that divides us. Thank you for inspiring, um, a vision for what the world could be, that we could have our differences, but still love one another and respect each other's ideas, that there could be something bigger than just capitalism and communism or Christianity and Buddhism or any of the things that are relevant narratives that quote unquote divide us, that there could be something bigger than that and that sport could be used to talk about and start conversations about really important things in life. And so I would say thank you because you you were the catalyst for something that I could have never dreamed for myself. Yeah. Like you said, that orange ball and for that matter, any sport can transcend those otherwise, um, you know, distancing factors in our lives. Right. So it was interesting that you pointed that out because I've 
I spent the vast majority of my adult life, beginning with my college thesis, understanding how sport can transcend, you know, racial differences, can transcend socioeconomic status. And that's kind of how this podcast got started was through that notion that sport can be that great equalizer. Um, it is that underlying theme behind a common goal and something that everybody can kind of wrap their head around, you know, even if you're not an athlete. If you look at it from a sociological standpoint, or even an anthropological standpoint, if we're going to dive into your master's degree at some point, it's nice to know that there is this medium that people can use to coexist and hopefully, like I said, have that common goal. Yeah, completely. I mean, you know, I think about the idea of sport for development and for the longest time, I mean, it's been building, right? It started, I think, really a long time ago. It just wasn't called that. And then 2005, you see the International Year of Sport and Physical Education put out by the United Nations. And then you start to see international working groups in 2008 to really come behind this idea. And then you see kind of just the wellspring of NGOs that developed in the last 10 years, thinking about sport for development, sport for peace, sport and social justice. And even though it's been largely trivialized and when I try to tell people on an international development scale what it is that I do and what I'm passionate about, it's like, well, I don't really see the connection, right? It's, I don't, I don't really understand how this influences economics or politics or social change. And I think to myself, well, one, how can you not? And two, if you have something as great as sport, right? When you think about all the domains that it intersects and all the ways that it can change people's lives. So then it is one of the most powerful antidotes that we have to combat so many things. And so when you look at it from a physical perspective, yes, we all know, you know, your heart, your lungs, your brain, your bones, your strength, your, all of those things, your sleep, all the things that improve physically as a result of working out, participating in sport. But then when you look at just the emotional benefits, how it stabilizes your mood, how it reduces anxiety, how it builds self-confidence, the body image, um, your self-worth, and then all of the skill development pieces. So goal setting and leadership, and discipline, resilience. And I think about what the world needs today, how the world feels like it's just on fire. There are so many challenges and you know, and people are stressed out and their devices and the anxiety and the depression and the way they feel about themselves and the way they see the world. And I just think when you have the cure, how could you not dedicate yourself to telling other people about it, right? Like it should be flying off the shelves. If it was something you could just buy and swallow, we would take it. But because it requires some effort and requires some understanding, it's like a little bit confusing for people. But I think that it's an incredible, incredible tool for social transformation. And yeah, and so I just feel... Even in those moments when it's trivialized, I think to myself, you know, the power of it is too great to give up. Yeah, well, I think you nailed it. I think that the fact that it takes effort is the deterring factor here. Mm -hmm. you know, rather take the path more traveled, the easy way out, because mm -hmm. it's a quick fix. Maybe it's a Band-Aid on whatever they're feeling. Um, when they think of their goals as a mountain rather than individual hills or individual cliffs on that mountain, it's a little bit more difficult to wrap their head around, but it is something that can transform people's lives, both on a micro and macro level, for sure. 100%. So with that said, when you were at the University of Tennessee, was there a moment when this stuff clicked? Was it something that you had felt strongly about and could articulate this clearly when you started there? Or was it something that the Center for Sport, Peace, and Society kind of opened up once you were in the middle of it? Yeah, that's a great question. I just think 
you have all these experiences, but sometimes you don't have words for the experience. So you, you have felt sport in a lot of different ways and it's changed your life and it's shaped you. And it, and for me, it's made me who I am. And I think about the positive experiences, like otherwise, if you didn't have positive experiences, you probably wouldn't keep playing, but also the negative experiences. And I think for me, there were things that are out of your control, um, that teach you a great deal about life. And so anything from injury to coach transition to the politics of boosters and financials and just all sorts of things. So what I realized, I think, that I couldn't articulate is that sport in and of itself is not good or bad, but it can be a really good experience if the people in power choose to operate in that with that understanding. And so it is a do good, do all kind of solution in some ways implemented with great responsibility and intentionality. And so I think what I came to understand is just experiences then really became a narrative of, okay, now I understand what I've gone through. I've reflected on it and now I can create something to change the way other people experience it. And then I started researching it and then I started asking questions outside of myself And I started asking other people groups and the local leaders who we were working with. And so that I could understand it, not just as opinion or something intuitive to me or experienced by me, but what does this look like in different cultures? And then how do I understand that from a a research lens and then give words to not just my experience, but others. And so I think with opportunity comes responsibility. And I had the opportunity at the University of Tennessee to meet a lot of different amazing people to work in 30 some countries at this point and work with 80 some. And so the things that I've learned, I feel a great responsibility to share. And I think the ideas were always in motion, but then having that academic background and the ability to go and to do research around it really allowed me to give words to something that I already felt. Right. And was this a path that some of your peers were following either when you were getting your master's or your PhD, or were you kind of an outlier? No, I don't think it was that popular in terms of understanding the sociological experience of sport, but I did have a great friend of mine and colleague, Dr. Sari Hillier, who we co-launched the Center for Sport, Peace, and Society together. And I think she was way ahead of her time in this domain, and I feel lucky to have spent that time with her and to be mentored by her. And so I think together, it's always nice to have someone who has your back, right? That you're like, am I just a weirdo? Are my ideas just out there, right? That you have someone who says, yep, if you are, I am too. Uh, So I think we spurred each other along on this path of discovery and understanding what sociology and culture, politics, religion, gender, uh, socioeconomics, how those all influence sport who has access, who doesn't, uh, who gets to participate and why. And so I think that was a quest that we got to share together. And I'm very thankful for that. I think that it's become overwhelmingly evident that if you're not embracing your weird, so to speak, (laughs) then quite honestly, you're not an interesting enough person for me to talk to. And I (laughs) I don't mean that in a pretentious way. Rather, I mean that in an inclusive way. Because if you're not unique in some capacity, then like I've talked to you in some respect already, you know, and it's not about bringing value to the table. It's more so being able to appreciate somebody stepping out of their comfort zone. And I think that 
from talking to you for not that long, it seems like we can attribute all of your weird to your dad so far. <laughs> I think that's fair. And I also think, you know, that's why I loved teaching. You know, there, I feel like Gen Z and millennials get a lot of bad rap, but I think there is a total embrace of what makes you quirky, makes you special. And I also think there's such a um, an idea of like, I need to have a cause that I care about. I need to care about something. And I think that's incredible. I think that's why I love teaching is that I could see the future in the eye, through the eyes of my students. And I realized that they're very committed to creating a more just, more fair, more equitable world, that there's a lot of compassion there, that they understand what it means to be, to create something that's mutually beneficial, that's sustainable, that's um, not just about me. And I know there are, maybe there are others, maybe I lived in a very naive sheltered place at the University of Tennessee, but what incredible students who inspire me to say, yep, it's important to care about causes. It's important to embrace your weird. It's important to be different. It's important to challenge the status quo. And I think in that, I also found a lot of inspiration to keep going because it's like, yeah, the future needs us. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be empowering. It's also probably a little scary. (laughs) I know that since I graduated college, I played baseball in college. You know, I had a unique experience in that six days out of my week, almost every week for four years, I was practicing, training, whatever it may be. And it was a division three school. So I can only imagine what division one athletics are demanding of. But the reason I mention it is because you're anywhere on a college campus, you're in this crucible of liberal thought, and it is a wonderful place to challenge the status quo. I don't want to say you're in a bubble necessarily, but you are in a safe place. And that kind of mentality where there should be open discourse rather than putting your foot down and saying, here's my belief. I'm in this camp or that camp. Um, Tribal about it. That's not going to help anybody accomplish anything and progress. So it's nice to hear you say that, especially having spent so much time there. It doesn't sound like you've been jaded. No, if anything, quite the opposite. I was running a program with the athletics department called the Vol Leaders Academy. It's one of the most uh, meaningful things I've ever done with my life. And in 2016, we launched and it was a fall course, spring course, and a summer international study abroad for student athletes. So one from each team on campus, male and female, coming together to unite around causes that they were passionate about. And so first year we traveled to Brazil second year Vietnam, third year Ecuador, this last year Rwanda. And I just think, wow, what a platform athletes have. What a space, what a following. Their physical presence, but also their digital presence to really radically change the world. And so, you know, I think about the topics that we covered in that time. So everything from gender-based violence, poverty, favelas, trafficking, post-disaster relief. I mean, all of those different countries and the unique social issues that were a part of that. And I think about how well they embraced that, got behind it, became outspoken on it, became ambassadors for certain causes. And I'm just like, this is how I see the future. And I feel so lucky that even in a very Southern conservative town like Knoxville, you could go on campus and find such life-changing big ideas, global ideas. Yeah. And is that part of the reason that you were so attracted to Athletes for Hope? Because you have a wide swath of opportunities to help, you know, communities both local, national, and internationally? For sure. I felt like 
at the University of Tennessee, first of all, this is the first time in 14 years I haven't taught, so I'm having a little bit of withdrawal. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a moment. But for those seven years, I feel like it was about depth of impact. It was, you know, investing in 20 or investing in 30, or and it was real long-term kind of commitment uh, through the four years that the students were there or through deep dives in community programs where I had spent 13 years working with refugees and Iraqi refugees there in Knoxville or different female focus groups, Girls Inc. and whatnot. So those relationships were deep. And then I saw the opportunity to come to Athletes for Hope and, and talking about what a program could look like and the breadth of impact. And so, you know, there's always a fine line. How do you create something really meaningful, but on a large scale? And I think the challenge of that was exciting to me is if that we have all of these incredible athletes who are ready to make a difference. How can I take what I learned with the 20 or 30 every year at the University of Tennessee and multiply that into something on a much bigger scale so that the ripple effect can even be more profound. So yes, that is what attracted me to this position. That's what was exciting for me. Yeah. And it's just been a great experience. So how did you kind of narrow your focus to equality? Yeah, I think that's a good question. You know, I read a quote once that said, of course, I'm a feminist. I'm a woman. I'm for myself. So, uh, you know, that's <laughs> that's fair. But I think about all the things around gender equality and I think about the world in which we live today. And yes, as a former female athlete, uh, as a professor, largely in a male domains um, that I've operated in, in sport, you see your fair share of challenges, I guess. You see, you know, when you walk into a room and you're a professional and they say, no, actually the women don't sit at the table. They sit in that back corner back there. And I was like, and what if I have something to say? Like, you'll never be able to hear me. So I don't even logically understand how you participate in the meeting if you're back there, but okay. So like things like that, that happen at 26, 28, 30. And you're like, wow, so that's real. Um, I guess I grew up naively. I didn't, I thought in my mind that life was just meritocracy and that, you know, like hard work will get you where you're supposed to go. And uh, I didn't realize how many sociological variables kind of uh, play into people's lives and how many layers of privilege we have in different ways, uh, myself included. And so I guess for me, gender equality was personal. It was like, okay, it doesn't make sense. Like any sports team, it doesn't make sense to play with half your team, right? So I don't understand why you would leave the other half off the field. I don't understand why you would sideline people, why you would silence them, why you would think that their contributions aren't relevant or powerful. So like I would never suit up and play a basketball game with two and a half people. I don't even understand that. So for me, it was just kind of basic math. of Like this doesn't make sense. And as a sports person, I really don't get it. And I think with everything that was happening in the world, with the Me Too movement, with Time's Up, with all of the, you know, the amazing and brave and powerful USA Gymnastics team and everyone that was talking about it, right? But not really, in my mind, not really talking about it in the right way. Um, I feel like people wanted to make change, but I think the words that we use in order to make change really matter. And so, you know, what I heard a lot of, that was synonymous with gender equality was like, oh, we're going to tackle women's issues or we're going to work on female empowerment. And for me, it was like, well, yes, okay. I think that there are issues that impact women. 
I wouldn't call them women's issues, but there are issues that impact women. And yes, should we empower more females so that they're confident um, to lead when the opportunity arises? Totally. But I think in terms of like gender equality, if that's what we're really aiming for, then we've missed the mark because it's like, okay, by saying it's a women's issue, then we're asking women to in a silo fix it. Uh, that it's like, it's your challenge, it's your thing. And now we need your brain to fix it because it only really impacts you. And so I think we're negating how integrated women are into society and that we, you know, stand next to each other on the Metro, in the boardroom, on the sports field. And so we're in this together, whether you really like it or not. So to call it a women's issue is, I think, sort of to deny responsibility. So I didn't really like that. And then I, Female empowerment, another, yes, important component, but in my mind, not that doesn't represent gender equality totally. It's like one of the ingredients of the enchilada, but not the enchilada, and I think that's what we focus on a lot, and it's like, how do we empower more women? And I'm thinking to myself, well, in the United States, um, women have outpaced men in terms of degrees earned since about the 70s, and I have you know, a million friends that are talented, smart, educated, experienced, creative, thoughtful, emotionally intelligent, great leaders of people. And they're stuck in middle management positions, not because they lack empowerment. They are empowered. Um, It's because they, the glass ceiling and the glass walls that confine them to this one particular way of leadership is what keeps us like boxed in. And so it's not that my friends need more workshops on how to feel confident um, to speak your mind. It's about understanding that we are together in this and that, that each one of us as an individual has a unique thing to say and offer the world. And that until we understand the potential of all of us, we're never actually going to solve anything. And so, you know, I started reading things that were very depressing, like 4% of all Fortune 500 companies are led by women or that one in four Americans believe that we will colonize Mars before there's gender equality in leadership and business. And I thought, okay, so first, if these are the thoughts, we have to then have the right language for what we're talking about, right? We can't keep calling it women's issues. Uh, to me, that's like a, a sports bra. I, I don't know, like that's something very specific. Um, and then female empowerment? No, because I have 500 friends who are super empowered and they just still can't get the job because there's no transparency and hiring retention or promotion processes. There's still just a lot of it based on ego, insecurity, and fear. And until we have transparency and accountability in some of these domains, we're never actually going to achieve gender equality. And so I know you and I talked about it's like, when is gender equality achieved? When we stop talking about it. That's when it's just normal to be collaborative and inclusive and for us to stand together and to do the things that we need to do. So when is it achieved or how will we know we arrived? It's is when we stop talking about it, I think. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned how important the words that you use to describe these challenges are. And that that immediately sparked the question in my mind of, should we be looking at equality from an equality of outcome or an equality of opportunity perspective? And regardless of which direction we go in, how will we know when we arrive? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's both, right? I think that, you know, right now there's a lack of opportunity. It's as much what I said in terms of, I feel like right now, a lot of people, it's women talking to women about things that impact women. 
And I just think we're going to get nowhere if that's what we continue to do. If we continue to make men outsiders in the movement, it's never going to work. So we have to create spaces where men feel safe to talk about the things that are challenging, right? Like, I think there are a lot of great men out there who also want this. And so I think about my dad and he's my greatest champion. And from personal experience, I know it to be true. And so how do we make it safer and more inclusive as women to have these conversations so that the opportunities can arise, so that those conversations can feel fluid? So that they, so one of my thoughts for Athletes for Hope is that one of the primary three goals that I want us to do is to be a convening space for men and women, all genders, right? A very gender inclusive place to be able to have this conversation and to work on it together and to not operate in silos and to just empower more women, more women talking to more women about women's issues. I just couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what we'll know we've arrived is that when men and women feel safe to talk about it and there's no need to really talk about it anymore. Right. That also leads me to a question about the equal pay argument that the women's national soccer team made after, I mean, to be completely honest, they wiped the floor with their <laughs> World Cup competition. And yeah. as, as someone that's a soccer fan, as someone that's, uh, you know, an American women's soccer World Cup team fan, it was triumphant to the point where it didn't bring me to tears, but emotionally I was feeling the tingles, you know, all the feels. And I raised my fist in triumph. And then I realized that they get back to the U.S. as champions on an international level. And they are met with an overwhelming amount of opposition. And I'm not necessarily taking one side or the other. You know, I have my druthers about each. But I'm wondering, as somebody that's been closer to these kinds of conversations, especially with a younger crowd, mm -hmm. you know, what have you heard from your former students, how are you feeling about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think it's a great question. First of all, I had the opportunity, um, Taylor, who works with me, uh, myself, we went to the Women's World Cup because we hosted, Athletes for Hope hosted an equality summit in between the semis and the finals. So I was able to go to two games. It was unlike anything I've ever experienced. I was so happy. It was amazing. And the Equality Summit was a great success. We had 150 really influential change makers and leaders there in the women in, in women's football space. And so we had, you know, Prince Ali, the Prince of Jordan. We had Sunil Gulati from U.S. Soccer. We had some really incredible people there talking about kind of repressed issues on the global agenda as it relates to women's sports. And so I learned a lot in that moment. I learned a lot, of course, about what's going on in the pay equality landscape and just equality in general. And so I think it's an interesting moment in time because, first of all, no one can really argue that it's not that women's sports, particularly the U.S. women's national team, is not popular or there's not a market for it or that there, it's not a, a high standard of play or that anybody really cares. Because, you know, when it becomes the fastest selling jersey on the Nike website and when it becomes this incredible revenue producing and audience viewing media <laughs> moment, then I think you realize like, the proof is in the pudding. Like it, it is what it is. 11.4 million people watched the men's world cup. And then there was, I think that was eclipsed by 2 million more people watching the women's. So to me, it, it is what it is. It says what it says. But I think what the problem is, is that we always want to compare apples to apples and it's not in terms of investments, in terms of what goes into the equation. Like to me, the return on investment is so high because there's so little going in. Mm -hmm. Right. So 
And I don't necessarily mean funding. I do mean like, okay, women's sports in general, it's 2% of all media coverage, right? So, you know, we spend weeks talking about the Seahawks versus the Broncos and every little storyline and the whose knees might tentatively be sprained by then. And like all of these things that attract you to the game, right? That tell you like who this is as a person. And you feel like by the end of the week leading up to the Broncos game that, you know, Peyton Manning personally, right? Like you've learned so much about him that, you know, his kids names, how old they are, what foundations he gives back to what his play call is, how he says, hut, everything about it. And then we turn to women's sports and we're like, 2% of the coverage and we're not even, (laughs) and so that's one issue I think is that there's no hype. There's no buildup. And then the second part of the issue is like you put the facilities here in Washington, DC, you put them across the river in a socioeconomic space where people can't afford the tickets. (laughs) They're not part of like capital one arena. They're not part of Audi field. They're over somewhere else in some high school recreation complex. And then you're like, well, we don't know why people don't go on a Friday night because it's not even on the radar. I mean, you're not, there's no billboard, there's no advertising, there's no um, effort to really get people there. You've put them 30 minutes away. That's not accessible by Metro surrounded by people who can't even afford a ticket. So come on. No, no one's going to go. You're right. And then it's a perpetual cycle. So for me, it's like, you're trying to compare something that's not comparable because the investments are not the same. So the inputs are not the same. So you can't expect the same output. And I just think if this were a business and you had someone like the women's national team who continues to obliterate the opponent, (laughs) you know, who's so successful, who year after year is the top seller or the top, whatever, then we wouldn't be arguing for equal pay. We'd be arguing for more pay. Why do we stop at equal pay? when they're clearly so phenomenal and so much above the competition and there is revenue behind it. It's kind of like the Ruth Bader uh, Ginsburg quote when she says, well, when will you be satisfied or thinking about women's Supreme Court justices? And she said, when there's nine, because if there were nine men, we wouldn't even blink an eye. And so it's like, we're arguing for equal pay. We're arguing for something that's 50, 50. And I'm thinking to myself, why have we stopped there? We're just trying to get, you know, 30% of women, in the boardroom, wonderful, but there are 50% of women or more in the workforce and there are 60% of women who have earned degrees. So why are we saying just equal? I don't know. Just my thought is that if you had somebody who was doing so well in terms of performance, would you be advocating for equal or would you be advocating for the best? Right. I think that's totally fair. I think that's totally fair. It's probably a tough pill to swallow for the people that have, like you said, been in power for generations and generations and whether that's the stereotypical white male that's in power or something else in another country i'm not sure but it's a fear factor sure nobody wants to be dethroned however nominal their throne may be in the grand scheme of Mm -hmm. things that is their identity they don't feel like they should be dethroned or usurped or or whatever terminology you want to use but like you said i think we're looking at progress right yeah for you, sure. If you take today as a microcosm and compare it to 50 years ago, leaps and bounds ahead of what it was, right? So trending in the right direction, by no means are things correct, you know, there's still a score to even, but, but trending in the right direction is something that's uplifting, at least knowing that if we've come this far, like you said, there's no reason to stop at equal. If we are trying to build a meritocracy, Keep going. 
you know? Yeah. Totally. Yeah, it's so interesting. So, you know, what it reminded me of is I was on the flight back from Lyon and I wrote about this on our blog space, but just thinking about, I don't know if you've ever tried this, but sitting on an airplane and as the airplane takes off, leaning forward. So the gravitational push is, and the tendency when you're taking off is to push you back into your chair. But if you try to lean forward, it's not impossible, but you can't. So, but it's difficult because you're fighting against gravity. And it really reminded me of where we are right now. Like the plane is going forward. Gender equality is on the docket. It is a conversation to be had. And I think, you know, what we'll find 20 years from now is that unfortunately the people who feel this way now are going to be on the wrong side of history. And I hate that because you can see it coming. But at the same time, it's like there's still all these forces trying to push back against the progress that's being made. And so I don't know. That's the only way I could really feel to describe it is like you want to lean forward, but gravity keeps pushing you back. But, you know, the plane is still taking off. Right. It's still happening. It's still happening no matter what I do. I lean forward. I lean back. It's going to happen. And so the plane is going to fly. And it's just a matter of where you are in the seat at that point. Right. Yeah. There's a little Darwinian effect going on in that plane, I'm sure, over the next 25 years. Yeah, for sure. People will be phased out if they don't jump on board with what's right. Yeah. So let's take a break from the heavy hitting questions for a second. We'll lighten the mood. We do a segment all the time on Give Back Sports podcast called the Takes and Fakes Trivia Game. All right. I'm down. Cool. So question one is, who is the University of Tennessee's all-time winningest football coach? Robert Neyland. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Should I bust into Rocky Top right now? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. I thought that was a reach, but I'm glad that I was in your wheelhouse. <laughs> okay. Question What's next? Two. Who was the first person to develop the science of manual muscle testing, or more colloquially known as kinesiology? Oh, gosh. Can I get a hint? Starts Uh, with? You can get a hint. Well, I'll give you half the answer. Some scholars would argue that the philosopher Aristotle was the first one. But in 1932 in Boston, those thoughts and those theories were honed by a man who his first initial was R and his last initial was L. I got nothing. It's me. R.W. Lovett is credited. Okay. All right. Great. Probably should have known that. Shout out to (laughs) (laughs) R.W. The final question is, how many varsity college teams are part of the Athletes for Hope program? Varsity college teams. Oh, man. Um, Great question. I wish our AFHU director, Suzanne, was on the call. (laughs) Answer it. No problem. Um, I'm going to go 22. 65. 65. All right. (laughs) Way to go, Suzanne. (laughs) You rock, sister. Suzanne's doing work. Yeah, she's doing work. Good for her. Don't beat yourself up, by the way. Typically, people get zero or one of those questions right. Okay. All right. I think the champion of takes and fakes trivia thus far got two, and like one of those two he needed help with. Um, You're in good shape. Okay. So so going back to this transition to a new market that you're working in, you you know, you've spent some time in in our nation's capital at this point. How do you think the 
presidential debates and political climate are going to affect the socially responsible work that Athletes for Hope does? A good question. I think next year is a big year on a lot of fronts, right? So we are five years into the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs put out by the United Nations, which means next year, 2020, is the year of delivery, right? Like you have 10 years to then sort of execute what's left. And these are very ambitious goals, gender equality being one of them. Um, We've got the presidential election coming up, which is as we continue to work on social justice issues at Athletes for Hope, there is increasingly the demand for a kind of a policy piece and a political activism. You know, gone are the days of shut up and just dribble, right? And so I think as athletes continue to seek out the injustices that they've experienced or that they see in the communities in which they grew up or where they're playing, um, they continue to ask for ways to be equipped digitally to talk about political issues. So I see that as being, I see honestly the presidential election and the way that is going as a plus for us, because no matter which side of the aisle you sit, um, it's allowing for greater conversation around why does this matter? Who am I in this? Um, How do I become more educated and equipped to do my part? And so right or wrong, good or bad, what's happened, I think, in the last three years is that people are paying attention more than ever before. And so I'll take that as a win. As someone who cares deeply about where this country is going, especially in a global sphere, I'll take it as a win. Yeah. So I think, you know, we've also got International Women's Day next March and a couple of other anniversaries around the women's right to vote, you know, the 19th Amendment. And so there are lots of things happening in 2020 that I think are critical to our movement and critical to what we're trying to do. And so now's a, a time and a moment to mobilize and equip athletes to really make a difference. And so that's our goal. That's what we're trying to do is to really unite everyone under an umbrella and get them ready for what this next year holds. Right. Now, this isn't necessarily to say that there should be a a binary in identifying genders, but if you're looking at equality as something that should be inclusive for both men and women and everything in between and outside of that, um, it seems as though one of the fastest tracks to accomplishing goals that you have, that people in in your shoes and other organizations have, is getting buy-in from men in power. Right. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, especially, you know, the arena that we play in, they're athletes. Yep. Athletes with millions of people looking at their Instagram every day. It's a huge burden to to understand the amount of impact that they can have. Something as small as a tweet could ruin your reputation, could set back you know, a gender equality initiative that had been gaining steam for five years and just because you're I mean, I happen to think LeBron James is typically a good role model, but Mm -hmm. if you're LeBron James and you've got 20 million people looking at every tweet that you post, there's a lot riding on that. So how do we encourage and impress upon these male athletes that, that have so much influence in the social sphere to embrace that power and to rise to the occasion? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So critical for where we are now. And, you know, it's funny, I think a year ago, I was looking at just some statistics. And it's funny you mentioned LeBron James, because there was at one point, LeBron and 
the president of the United States had the same amount of Twitter followers. And I said, what does that say about, you know, sport and the power of it um, is that President LeBron James could have the same number of followers. So I thought that was interesting. You know, we see a lot of great male champions that are out there. I think about Dwayne Wade. He's sort of carrying the torch right now in a lot of gender equality discussions. Um, Also, Steph Curry. (laughs) He talks a lot about his wife and his daughters and like, how can we even really be having this conversation anymore? Uh, I think about Zach Ertz and being married to Julie Ertz on the women's national team and, you know, how supportive he's been as a husband and partner to her and championing her accolades and her achievements. And then I think about my male students, you know, oh, some of my favorite, oh, geez, I mean, just so good. And many of them are now playing professional sports and it gives me such hope. But I think what's key to that is we've created such a culture of uh, masculinity and what it means to be a man. And I think what was interesting to me is that a lot of times we think we have to have these women have to talk to women, men have to talk to men. But what I found is with my male students is that I think it was almost comforting to be out of a very testosterone filled environment and to be like to come to me and to talk to me about things that they were really thinking, feeling, experiencing, where they didn't have to put up a front of being macho, where they didn't have to be anything but themselves, where it was okay if they felt like they needed to cry, where it was okay to be upset about something, where their goals were beyond what we've ascribed as masculine, uh, what it means to have a good weekend. And so I think there's just got to be, I think, I don't know, um, something that makes it okay for men to take down the mask of perfection and protection and that it's okay to be vulnerable or, or to care about something that you don't have to be so hard all the time and that, that actually we would welcome it. And I think as a society, we need it. And so I don't know. I don't know how we create that space. I mean, I think it's a, it's a magical question because it's what's, it's what's needed. And I don't know. I don't think conversation is enough. Conversation about it, I should say, is enough. How do we unite people in a way I think, honestly, the model that we had where we had male and female students together working on social issues, it was a very powerful one because everybody brought something different to the table. And I think if there was a way through Athletes for Hope for us to channel that and to encourage men and women to work alongside on something that they both care about, that it's a game changer and that somehow we have to get rid of these ideas of toxic masculinity and maybe it needs to come from a man saying those words or maybe it needs to be more caring supportive women coming alongside men to say hey you can drop that it's okay you don't have to be that way and I think in a culture like sport I mean it's so inherent like it's embedded right it's like you've got to be powerful and dominant and when you dunk if you don't hang on the rim and yell in someone's face you are less than right like so I just think there's got to be a shift in and, and some inclusion of women in those spaces so that those conversations can happen. Yeah. Uh, Andre Agassi, who I know is one of the founders of Athletes for Hope, was a very interesting representation of masculinity when he was a young kind of reckless kid from Las Vegas who jumped onto the international tennis scene and started putting down... Pete Sampras and and all of these all-time greats, um, he was very much a representation of masculinity in the late 80s, early 90s, I guess. Um, If you had the opportunity to meet him as a founder of AFH, what would you tell him and what would you ask him? Uh, That's a great question. 
First of all, I'd love to meet him. I mean, I know that Ivan, our CEO, has a close relationship with Andre. And I mean, and several people in our staff have met him, of course, as a founder. But, you know, I just think about we all, if we're not growing, we're not living right. And so I just think, I wonder what he would say to his late 80s self and that hair phase that he went through. Uh, (laughs) Big hair, bad hair. Um, And so I would love to hear his thoughts and the growth and the self-reflection that he's had over the years, Uh, you know, getting married, uh, traveling the world. What perspective has he gained? Um, What letter would he write to his younger self? And so I don't know. I think all of us grow and change over time. The influence, things influence who we become. And I'm sure his ideas about all of that have changed dramatically. Um, Because also, as I can attest, once you get old and you're retired (laughs) and your bones hurt and you're not as good as you used to be, the humility kicks in and things really change after that. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine having the perspective you have now when you're, you know, still playing ball? I wish, right? Yeah. You know, that's kind of the beauty of the journey, though. You get to look back on yourself. Hindsight's obviously twenty twenty. You just kind of hope that you led with your heart and your heart was pointing you in the right direction. That's right. That's all you can do. Make the decision for today and hope that it's the right one. Right. That was an awesome, enlightening way to spend an hour. Thank you for hanging out with the Give Back Gang. Yeah, I'm so happy you asked. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Is there anything else you want to tell our listeners while you've got the mic? Yeah, I do, because I want everyone to get involved with Athletes for Hope. So I think if you have a time, talent, or resources, uh, we'd love to have you. There are lots of ways to getting to get involved. Uh, everything from if you have old sports equipment, gently used, we'll take it, we'll share it with girls in Uganda or boys in inner city LA, we'll take it. Uh, We have virtual mentorship opportunities. We have exchange programs. If you want to travel with us domestically or abroad, we'd love to have you. If you'd like to help us host events, we're looking to launch international days of service with athletes and communities and having corporate partners to help with that and get corporate engagement and and employees out there and involved in the community. And so we'd love to launch our first one on December 10th around the International Day of Human Rights. So if you're someone who's interested in serving in that way, just a project with athletes and corporate employees, we'd love to have you on the team. So you can look at the website or you can just email me at ahuffman, H-U-F-F-M-A-N, at athletesforhope.org. All right, cool. And if it's an easier way to keep up with what you guys are doing, how can the listeners find you on social media? Yeah, at Dr. Ash, D-O-C-T-A-A-S-H, or at Athletes for Hope, either one. Excellent. Well, thanks again for tuning in, Give Back Gang. Don't forget to download and subscribe to Give Back Sports Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you access your free podcast content. Find us on Facebook at Give Back Podcasts. Give Back is always spelled G-I-V-B-K. On Twitter at Give Back Podcasts. On our website, giveback.com. And stay tuned for episode 14. Until then, remember, we've all got soul in our step and brilliance to bestow. Take a minute today to do something that improves tomorrow. Bye for now. <laughs>